From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I am Brittany Luce, and I am in the studio with one of our producers, <laughs> Emmanuel Barry. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Emmanuel is wonderful, a fellow Michigan girl like myself. But uh, I'm here today to talk to you about a, a Missouri girl, another Midwestern <laughs> girl at least, but a Missouri girl, yes. uh, Miss Josephine Baker. Ooh. I've been obsessed with this like little piece of Josephine Baker's life uh-huh. for a while. It's this crazy story, um, which is kind of crazy to say it's a crazy story about (laughs) Josephine Baker because her whole life is just sort of like unimaginable for most people, right? that's a perfect word for it. So like she was born in the early 1900s. She's a black woman from St. Louis and she becomes this big time dancer and singer and star in Paris. Like this woman's life almost seems mythical. She's, like, walking her pet cheetah around on a leash. Uh-huh. Like, this woman had, like, men fight a duel over her. What? Yeah. She was a spy during World War II for the French. But most people don't even get to this part, which is that Josephine Baker was also, like, a huge activist. I feel like I know a little bit about that, but not but not a lot, though. Like, like I don't know specifics. Okay, so... She did some pretty standard stuff, right? She was all about fighting Jim Crow laws, so mm-hmm. she refused to stay in segregated hotels and restaurants, and she fought to only play to integrated crowds. And reportedly, she was even asked by Coretta Scott King to become the symbolic leader of the civil rights movement. Coretta Scott King. Yes, Coretta. That's news to me. But the most shocking part about her activism uh-huh. was that she attempted to build a racial utopia. A racial utopia. <laughs> yes. Okay. That is, that's something I've never heard before. Um, <laughs> please, Emmanuel, please tell me the story. Like, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat right now. Okay. So, it all started in 1954, when Josephine Baker went to an orphanage in Japan to adopt a baby boy. When she arrived, the first person who greeted her was me. So I've been told. This is Akio Buyon. His birth mother was Japanese. His father's ethnicity is unknown. Today he's in his 60s, but at the time he was 18 months old. Uh, I was not supposed to be adopted. He was not the child Baker came to adopt. Akio says she was coming to pick up a little boy named Juno. And I was to stay in Japan, but uh, I don't know. Some people said that I made, as uh, we said in French, des yeux de coquer. Puppy dog eyes. <laughs> so she couldn't have left me behind. So Josephine decided to adopt both children. But this went against Josephine's grand plan. So let me break down this plan. Josephine would adopt children from all the major ethnic groups in the world, bring them together in a castle in the south of France, and raise them as a family to prove that people from different backgrounds could live together in harmony. She wanted to build a little utopia. But there were problems right from the start. The kids Josephine adopted were both Japanese. How could she fulfill her mission of having children from all over the world if both the kids were from the same country? She thought maybe that she was going against what she had told the people. So she made some adjustments. Akio, whose only known parent was Japanese, became 
Korean. So she said, we're going to say he's Korean and uh, the little one is uh, going to be Japanese like that. And I'm going to show that uh, two people uh, coming from opposite uh, population can live and uh, act as brothers. I mean, did you know that you were Japanese and not Korean growing up? Or did you think you were Korean? No, no, I did not. I didn't. I, uh, I, uh, it, it's, uh, I, uh, I learned that a little later when I was in my, uh, my tw- early 20s. She told me that I was not Korean and she, uh, that I was Japanese. So with Akio and his brother's adoptions, Josephine Baker's family came to life. She called them the Rainbow Tribe. Okay, so my gut reaction to this plan was, this cannot be a real thing. But then I thought about it. All the times that I wish that I lived in a world where the weight of blackness wasn't so heavy. And a little part of me wondered, like, what does it actually look like to try and build a racial utopia? To understand why Josephine created the Rainbow Tribe, you've got to know a little bit about where she was in her life in 1951. She was going through one of her reinventions. It's useful to think of Baker as something like Madonna. This is Matthew Guturl, and he wrote the book on Josephine Baker and the Rainbow Tribe. Madonna changes or reimagines herself roughly every 10 years or so and becomes something else. And Baker had gone through a series of revolutions in terms of her own public image from the 1930s onward. Over the course of 20 years, Josephine went from being an exotic burlesque dancer to a French film star, from a French film star to a French war hero. But in the 1950s, Josephine decided she wanted to start a family. And she wanted that family to live in a different world than she did. See, as a girl in St. Louis, Josephine had watched the race riots of 1917, watched as mobs beat and bloodied her Black neighbors, watched from the banks of the Mississippi as East St. Louis turned to ashes. She saw how hatred destroyed lives. So she wanted to challenge more than rules and regulations. She wanted to challenge the feelings behind Jim Crow. And she was a brutal realist uh, politically, and in this sense, her brutal realism was about changing the way we think and feel about family and about closeness and about proximity because she felt that that was the root cause of racism. She may have been a brutal realist in calling out segregation and racism, but her solution for fixing this problem was pretty abstract. She wasn't going to start a protest or boycott. She was going to build a family. Josephine talked about her plan years later at a press event in New York City. Now, I suppose you want to know why these children were adopted. Well, let us say I use the word adoption to you, but at home we don't. We say we just met each other on the road of life and we both needed love and we're growing up together. Josephine had always wanted kids, but she couldn't have them. So she decided to adopt. And in building this family, she was fulfilling this desire to be a mother, but also to change the world. Seeing that people were misunderstanding each other, I decided to unite unite from different parts of the world little small children who were innocent before they had 
come in contact with influences, be they good or bad, and to find out if it were really possible for people of different countries and continents and religions and colors to live together. So this family was about showing those who would discriminate, those who would burn down Black neighborhoods, that they should be ashamed. For her, these children were soldiers enlisted in her effort and deployed strategically as a way to convince people that she was right and they were wrong and to change their hearts and minds. So Josephine set off to find her soldiers with her husband, Joe Bouillon, the other half of Joe et Joe. And the adoption process was surprisingly easy. She just, um, for lack of a better word, grabs these children um, or uh, gets permission from their parents or makes a kind of informal arrangement with whatever authorities are responsible for them and just sort of begins to assemble a family with very little oversight uh, at all. These types of adoptions would never fly today. But perhaps because it was so easy, Josephine became a serial adopter. Akio, the oldest, said after he and Jano were adopted, it didn't stop. So two kids became four kids. Jari is from uh, Finland. There is Louis, who is from Colombia. Became six kids. Uh, Jean-Claude, France. Moses, he was from France also. And then it just spiraled. Brian is uh, from Algeria. Marianne was a a French born in Algeria. Those two were survivors of a massacre. Kofi is from Ivory Coast. Mara is from Venezuela. Uh, Noel is from France. Noel was actually found in a trash can. And I'm missing one. Uh, Stelina is is from uh, Morocco, Morocco, I think. And by the late 1960s, Josephine was mother to a dozen children, from two months to 12 years old. I must say that I was a lucky one to be able to choose. That's a privilege, too, to be able to go around the world and choose the country with which you would like to have a child and find so many little, tiny little babies just come to the world and be able to take it in your arms and and say, this is my child. There's nothing more beautiful than that feeling. Josephine had built a family unlike any the world had ever seen. But it wasn't just a family. It was a political statement. Each child needed to serve as a symbol of a certain ethnic group. So she decided she needed to have an indigenous child from South America. She needed to have the blondest white kid from Finland. And when Josephine couldn't find what she needed, she made adjustments. Like with Akio's adoption. Or like with her son Moses, who she simply gave a Jewish identity because it was essential to her plan. If you've ever been on the It's a Small World exhibit, you know that the boat sort of pulls you through these these imaginings of what life is life in Mexico or in Africa. And in many ways, the children were drawn that way by Baker as as cartoon stereotypes. The family would all live and be put on display at Les Melandes, a 15th century castle Josephine had purchased and restored in southern France. It looks rather like the Disney castle. It overlooks the river. 
Um, if you go down the hill from the chateau, you end up in a kind of uh, cabaret style nightclub that she's built. There's a swimming pool in the shape of a J that you can see from the chateau's walls. There are amusement park rides that she's put in place. She's really built a complex that resembles Disneyland. It was built to be a tourist attraction. Visitors could come take a ride on the swings, go to a show at the club, and then come and watch the Rainbow Tribe play. This all sounds messed up. Like, who would visit this place to watch children play? And why? But in the 1950s, transracial adoptions were rare, particularly this many. So the world wanted to see the utopia Josephine Baker had built. Could children of different races live together in harmony? There's this photo of Josephine and her husband, Joe, surrounded by the Rainbow Tribe. The kids are all dressed in matching outfits with cardigans and shorts and little white ankle socks. They're smiling, their little hands reaching up towards a giant beach ball. And in the background, you can see hordes of white people clutching the iron gates, squeezing their faces between the bar to get a look. So the children grew up with strangers watching them. One visitor to the estate um, remembered um, sitting down for breakfast inside the chateau and having the children move through the kitchen one at a time. The children would come up to him and shake his hand or curtsy and leave the room. Shake the hand, exit the room, one after the other. Like the Von Trapps almost, they sort of moved through in a kind of age cycle, like younger to older, um, in a kind of um, circus-like performance. Maybe I'm looking at this with my 2018 woke glasses on, but this all seems really bizarre. At the time, though, people were impressed with Josephine's mission. The Black press finds this absolutely fascinating. You know, here's this woman living in a castle, adopting all of these children, white children included, and she's you know, basically doing things that they've never seen done before and that would be simply legally impossible in the U.S. Black folks in America were being hosed down and beaten at protest. And meanwhile, Josephine was rich, Black, famous, and building an alternate reality where racism didn't even exist. In a lot of ways, Josephine's version of the world seemed much more sane. The press followed the ever-expanding family. A writer at the Chicago Daily News called it, quote, a splendid example of how racial and social prejudice can be limited by love and education. One article even suggested that for assembling the Rainbow Tribe, Josephine deserved a Nobel Peace Prize. She believed she built a utopia. The world was captivated. But in reality... Things were far from perfect. Cracks in Josephine's plan started to show from the very beginning. Matthew Guturel says while Josephine could easily dream up the symbolic family, it was hard to deal with a real one. Raising real children is different than drawing them um, in a coloring book. And I think she struggled 
almost as soon as she began the adoptions with the disconnect between the ideal that she'd imagined for herself as an antidote to racism and the real around her of having to um, deal with five-year-olds who had a temper tantrum. Or what about a five-year-old who was shy, who didn't like parading around in front of strangers or the people watching them from the gates? Akio says he hated all of this. Ask any child if he's like, if he likes to be observed like a monkey or an animal. It's the same. I imagine myself a tiger or a monkey or a zebra or an elephant being looked at. If they could speak, we don't like it. Akio says their main caretakers were nannies and their father. Josephine was the breadwinner traveling for work. She was always busy, but she tried to to, to take time to, to have time for us. But sometimes she didn't. She couldn't. And when she did have time, well, sometimes it was in the middle of the night. When she was going uh, coming back from traveling, she used to to wake us up, everyone, to in order to have a, a late dinner because uh, she she has missed. Usually she missed that. She forget that uh, we have school. My father used to fight with her because telling her, listen, Josephine, you can see them tomorrow because they need to be rested to, in order to, to learn well. But, well, we get used to that. <laughs> they had to get used to a lot of her demands. As with most parents, she had a certain vision of how her kids would grow up. The children of the Rainbow Tribe were supposed to be global ambassadors for her mission. Tutors helped them learn dozens of languages. She wanted them to learn certain trades based on where they came from. But the kids didn't grow up to become racial stereotypes from It's a Small World. They were, in many ways, French kids. By the time the oldest kids were teenagers, Les Milandes was no longer this big tourist attraction. And I mean, let's be real, babies are much cuter than teenagers. Anyway, the entire enterprise by this point is just sort of falling apart. And Josephine's celebrity is fading. She and her husband have split up by this point. And she's in a bunch of debt. By 1968, she couldn't even afford the castle. They were forced to move out. There are these newspaper pictures of a forlorn Josephine, chin in hand, she's sitting on the steps of Le Milande, and her belongings are packed in a carpet bag next to her. The principal uh, problem for my mother is, was to keep us all together. She, we were a family, and it's not because we lose her home that we are going to part. Princess Grace, the former American actress and friend of Josephine Baker, offered her and the kids a place to stay in Monaco. But the teenagers rebelled there. When I asked Akio what he was like as a teen, he was blunt. Like any teenager, stupid. They grew their hair out long, like most kids in the 70s. Some of the kids had boyfriends or girlfriends. And Josephine, she longed for the cute babies she had snatched. Not these teenagers that she couldn't control. Uh, it's, it was uh, difficult uh, for, for her. We were always babies. For our mothers, like that. Children who were out of line were sent to stay with friends who Josephine thought could be a good influence. Some kids went off to boarding school. 
and others were sent on trips back to their birth countries to reconnect with their heritage. Josephine's racial utopia fell apart. When Akio looks back, he doesn't see his family as some failed experiment. The one word he kept using to describe his childhood was normal. Well, we went to school, making some homework if there is, playing. You know, it, it was not so, so very different. It's a normal life, a life of every child. The, the only difference, our mother uh, was Josephine Baker, and uh, we were living in a castle. That's the only difference. Most children don't grow up in a castle with people watching them. And most don't have a mother that's a superstar. They don't meet popes or travel the world to hang out with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. They're not on magazine covers and advertisements. And they don't have 11 brothers and sisters from all over the world. But I think I get what Akio is saying when he says it was normal. This was just his family. And for him, Josephine Baker was not the famous entertainer. She was mom. Speaking of my mother, she was a stud person. <laughs> she was a good-hearted person. She, but she could be stud She could be resentful. She could be generous. She would, could be forgiving. She could be a visionary. But sometimes her vision got in the way of reality. The world was changing. What she really was preaching was that sense of, uh, of a warm embrace being as important as anything else, color-conscious family that was open to any who, who were bold enough to claim it. Um, and that seems very dated in 1973 as opposed to 1953. She finds herself adrift in a way uh, and becoming increasingly politically irrelevant. So Josephine moved away from her activism and returned to the stage. In 1975, at the age of 68, she was on the verge of a major comeback, her own musical review. The show opened, and it was a huge success. Josephine was back in the spotlight. But her comeback was short-lived. Four days later, she died of a brain hemorrhage. Her oldest child, Akio, was 22, the youngest child, Stelina, was 10. Today, the kids live all over the world. I've spent so much time struggling to figure out how I feel about what Josephine actually built. At times, I've been shocked by her actions. Like, how can a Black woman who's a barrier-breaking civil rights activist have such a bizarre understanding of ethnicity? But then I remember something that Akio told me. It's the very fact that she's Josephine Baker that makes both those things possible. Uh, let's say that my mother had qualities, had, uh, uh, her qualities were equal to her defects. You cannot have big qualities and little defects. You have big qualities, big defects. Josephine had big qualities and big defects. But she didn't seem to have any regrets. And don't think for one moment that I'm, when I'm trying to strut across the stage, that I don't know that I perhaps in some eyes or some mind might be stupid or ridiculous doing it. But nothing is ridiculous and nothing is stupid when you do it in the sense of helping humanity. 
I think it's quite natural that I should even be a fool if necessary in some people's sense. I don't think Josephine Baker is a fool for trying to build a better world. I mean, so often the world seems so terrible and impossible to fix. And Josephine Baker, she had spent her entire life pursuing and accomplishing impossible things. The Knot is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings, Kate Parkinson-Morgan, and Emmanuel Barry, with production assistance from Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. We are edited this week by Annie Rose Strasser and Sarah Saracen. Engineering from Cedric Wilson. Fact-checking by Max Gibson. Special thanks to Brenna Daldorf and Catherine St. Louis. If you want to learn more about this story, check out Matthew Guturel's book, Josephine Baker and the Rainbow Tribe. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show by Cedric Wilson and Bobby Ward. For the full list of music credits, visit gimletmedia.com slash the knot.